Hi, I'm Chelsea, the Christian Nutritionist. Welcome to the Christian Health Club podcast. We are here to fire you up in spirit, mind, and body so that you can get out into the world and be everything God created you to be. Welcome to the club. Here we go. Hello friends, welcome back to the club. I hope you're doing well today. I have a special guest, y'all, a New York Times best-selling author on with us today to talk about his new book. Guess what it's called? You're not gonna believe this. It's called Eat Fast Feast, A Guide to Christian Fasting. Could it be more spot on? for what we do and talk about here all of the time. Uh, Jay is an assistant professor at the Catholic University of America. He's a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute and an executive editor at The Stream. I am so honored to have you on. Welcome, Jay, to the Christian Health Club podcast. It's great to be with you. Yes, well, we are big fans, big, big fans around here of feasting and fasting and eating in general, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, really having that goal of metabolic flexibility, which mm. you talk about throughout the book. Um, and so you didn't even know it, but as I was reading the book, I was high-fiving you and fist-bumping you <laughs> all through the pages. Um, I really enjoyed reading it. And what it did for me was really um, flesh out a mm-hmm. lot of... Um, you know, a lot of the science behind what we do, but also the historical background um, about, you know, Christian fasting. And it was just so, such a really comprehensive educational and encouraging read. And what it did for me, you know, even though I'm very familiar with feasting and fasting, what it did for me was just really um, strengthen my conviction and my motivation. Mm. And so I think for my audience, whether they you know, have been practicing some feasting or fasting, I think mm-hmm. it can do that for them, but also be a comprehensive approach for somebody that is completely new to this. Yes. So what I'd love to do is um, just really start by talking about why, why as Christians, um, we're meant to fast. Well, there's actually a bunch of reasons. And um, the, the first thing we might just note, if you're a Christian, you might not know that Christians did this regularly and rigorously for hundreds and hundreds of years. You cannot read one church father, whether it's Basil the Great or Irenaeus or St. Augustine or St. Anthony, whomever, uh, without them telling you about the wonders of fasting. They insist that it gives you power in your prayer, it strengthens your prayer, it's useful for spiritual warfare, it helps discipline your body and put your, your body under the control of your, your soul. Um, and it also helps clear your mind and strengthen your body. That's what's funny is you might assume, okay, well, the church fathers all talk about uh, the spiritual benefits of fasting, and they do, but very often in the same breath, they will talk about the physical and the mental benefits of fasting. And I don't think they made this 
you know, simple kind of uh, uh, bifurcation between mind, body, and soul. They just thought, look, we're human beings. We're made in the image of God. We're spiritual and physical beings. And so you should fast because it's good for your soul and it's good for your body and pretty much everything will go better. And so what was sort of staggering to me when I first got into this was just to realize how pervasive, really universal the practice of fasting was for at least 1,500 years of Christianity. And yet today, most of, at least the Christian tradition that really retains fasting the most are Eastern Orthodox and Eastern Rite Christians, those of us that are either Protestant or Catholic. Some, some fast, but it's not a major part of our lifestyle. And, and that's what I hope to recover with this book. Right, exactly. I think, you know, I think that we, in modern times, um, you know, fasting is becoming... Um, more and more well known for its physical benefits, for its physical mm -hmm. health benefits. But we're, you know, people are just separated too much, you know, whether yes. they, you know, it's okay. It's on one hand, it's either physical or on the other hand, you might be familiar with the spiritual. Um, but as you know, I'm always sharing with my audience, true health is a, a spirit, mind, body approach. Fasting is yes. good for all of that. And I love the way that you talk about how it's really unifying um, of the, the physical and spiritual nature. It is. It's, I would say, you know, we live, tend to live disintegrated lives in which we're sort of emphasizing one or the other. Uh, but the reality is that we're, we're body and soul. And so that means there's things we can do for our soul that affect our body for good or for ill and vice versa. There's things you can do for your body uh, that affect your soul for good or for ill. And, and of course, the Apostle Paul would, was perfectly happy to use sports metaphors and track metaphors when he was talking <laughs> about the spiritual life. And um, that's, that's what's amazing about fasting is because if you're just praying, especially if you're just doing mental praying, it's very easy to just treat that sort of abstractly. And all of us struggle, you know, staying on target when we're just doing mental prayer. Sometimes if we do vocal prayer, it's a little easier. What fasting does is it brings together our body and our mind and our souls so that you're, you're, in a way you're sort of tapping into the metabolism of the body of Christ when you fast. And what was fascinating to me was that, um, you know, about the time Christians stopped fasting uh, almost completely, suddenly people that are just interested in body hacking and, and fitness discovered its wonders. And honestly, Chelsea, when I first started working on this book, I felt like, okay, fasting is still a lot of people are treating it as fringe, but people are starting to hear about it. There's a lot of evidence in the scientific literature about its therapeutic value. And then between the time I started on it and the book came out, it's now people kind of know that there are people fasting. It's not fringe anymore. It's sort of, okay, well, that's controversial, but tell me about it. And I honestly feel like what we need is an approach that unites these things. It unites the, all the historical and spiritual wisdom of uh, the body of Christ through history, and then all the scientific evidence for uh, its physical benefits. And that's, you know, I, I want to bring those two things together. Yes, and that's what you did so, so well in your book. Um, you know, when we hear about uh, kind of that call to fasting, a lot of people will quote, you know, um, you know, or say from the Bible that, mm -hmm. you know, Jesus said, when you fast, not if yes. you fast. And, but I thought, you know, you, um, you wrote this sentence in the book um, that says, Jesus's 40 day fast in the gospels is a big flashing neon sign to remind us that fasting should never have ceased to be a part of basic Christian life. So can you just kind of speak to that? Yeah. That's kind of, I felt like that's the one that you chose 
um, to really um, drive home the point. So can you kind of expound I on did. that? Well, I mean, Christians all know that we're supposed to model our lives after Christ. That doesn't mean we're literally supposed to do everything. We're not all supposed to die on the cross, obviously. Uh, but Paul's constantly talking about, you know, I, 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 I die and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Um, you know, for Catholics who, who pray the rosary, it's actually this practiced prayer where you're thinking about different episodes in the life and the ministry of Christ. And so then Christ himself, it's in it's all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke mentioned that Jesus went into the desert and fasted, presumably from food, just from food, um, for 40 days. He was hungry at the end. Now, when did this happen? Well, this happened right before he started his earthly ministry, and then Satan tempts him at the end. And so you think, okay, well, why did he do it exactly? Well, presumably, it was like a, I say it's the mother of all spiritual boot camps before he fights <laughs> the principalities and powers. He didn't work out. He didn't carb load, right? He didn't do a <laughs> high-intensity interval training. He actually fasted. And all the early Christians thought, okay, this means something. Maybe we're not all supposed to go in the desert for 40 days and fast, but we need to be fasting. He assumed his followers would fast. And before long, they started focusing on that 40-day window. And that's how we ended up with this season of Lent, which is roughly 40 days in which we sort of model ourselves after this fast of Jesus in the desert before the great feast of Easter. And so it all really makes sense uh, if you're looking at it from a distance. But for people that are not used to fasting. I mean, I had honestly, I had a radio interview a couple of weeks ago with a Christian talk show host that had never done it. And I could practically hear him going into a panic attack talking about the <laughs> idea that he might delay breakfast, right? So oh you know, this is just not a part of what most of us do. And I realized that. I thought, look, I don't want to come off as this kind of hardcore faster that's telling you to fast for 40 days. Uh, and so I really felt like I needed to make the historical case that look, the people, Jesus did it. Jesus assumed his followers would do it. All the people closest to him in time and culture and language did it. And then the farther away we got, the less and less of it we did. And so, you know, I feel like for Christians, we at least need to realize, okay, this is, and to entertain the possibility that this is something that we dropped and that it was a mistake for us to drop it. Yes. I love um, what I really appreciated because this is really what I wanted to know was, you know, how, where did the disconnect come in? Like, how did hmm. we get so far away um, as a, you know, fasting as a regular part of our discipline and faith. And you go into a lot of it in the book, but can you yeah. just give us maybe one example? I mean, there were several, Absolutely. you know, kind of reasons, but just, just one that disconnected us. Well, well, one is just that the, over time, the logic for different kinds of fasts tended to disappear. And so I'm using fast in the kind of broad sense. So it, of course, strictly speaking, means just going some amount of time without food, but it's often also used for limiting the kinds of food you eat for some period of time. And so, you know, at a time in which, say, most people got their calories and their nourishment from land animals, from sheep and from cattle and, and, and chicken, then it would make, make sense to sacrifice and give that up and either not eat meat or, at all or maybe to eat fish. And so you, that can, the, the idea that that could be a sacrifice makes sense in a particular culture. But then, you know, you're, you're 21st century America, um, just having to eat fish on Friday, I mean, what kind of sacrifice is that? So, okay, so I can't have fried chicken, but I can have lobster bisque and, um, <laughs> you know, orange ruffy. I mean, it, it's a mild inconvenience. And so a lot of the, the kind of historical fasts that made sense at a particular time, they came to seem arbitrary for people. And then in different cultures, different places, for Catholics at least, there would be different dispensations given for people for whom something was either too much of a burden or didn't make any sense. And so over time, 
these kind of ritualized fasts, they start to look arbitrary. And the reason we had those kinds of moderate fasts, honestly, rather than just the straight fast of not eating, is that it tends to be hard. And so it's much easier for us to give that up. Notice we haven't managed to abandon the Christmas feast and the Easter feast. That's easy. Um, it's usually the, the fasts that are before that that are difficult or that don't make sense to people that have tended to go by the wayside. Right. I mean, fasting, you know, thinking of fasting up until Christmas, like during the mm. season of Advent, mm -hmm. that's, that's when people are feasting the most. And so, Absolutely. you know, um, it may, it, not that it makes more sense, but I think people find it more uh, approachable, reasonable, mm -hmm. I guess, maybe in the um, Lenten season. Yes. Um, approaching Easter, you know, a lot of... Um, a lot of people are, you know, give up something, but there's, there is such a gulf um, now between, um, you know, present day and that, and the, and the idea of fasting as to what it was. And I love the way that you, um, you know, shared different, uh, different reasons for that throughout history. I thought that was really fascinating um, to know and have a handle on that. Um, well, okay, I thought it was interesting when I was reading that, you know, you, in the book, you kind mm -hmm. of are talking about your experience with all of this, and you said it wasn't all that long ago that you were, no. like, the person that was, like, breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, snack, yeah. and then and then top it off with a protein shake before bed. <laughs> and, <laughs> exactly. I mean, and that is so, this kind of, this idea that we have to eat all day, to, you know, from a nutritionist point, I, mm -hmm. I am still working, you know, still have to kind of counteract that belief for a lot of people that that is yeah. not better for your metabolism. No. Um, it does not stoke your metabolism. It isn't the best thing for weight loss. Um, you know, and I deal with a lot of clients that have digestive issues, weight mm -hmm. issues, and um, but a, that is just so ingrained in our mind that it can be hard to overcome that. So yeah. can you can you just speak to that a little bit and making that mind shift from oh, that way of eating? It's so hard because in my mind, I was, I mentioned in, in the book, I was a strength trainer for sports teams in college. So I spent a lot of time in the weight room. I've always been kind of mostly a skinny guy most of my life. And so uh, if you're like that, especially in high school, you try to force yourself to eat as much as you can and you still don't gain any weight, you know, it's a weird kind of problem to have. But if you read a lot of bodybuilding and uh, magazines, they'll tell you, okay, look, you want to keep a nice steady protein feed. You'll hear this myth about the starvation mode. If you don't eat for very long, your body will start shedding muscle and it'll store fat and it does all the things you don't want it to do. And if you get that in your mind, then you realize, you think, okay, well, if I don't eat for very long, I'm actually, it's actually bad for me. It's not that I'm just so weak, I can't handle it. I actually think, look, I don't want to lose my, you know, hard-earned lean muscle mass and start storing a bunch of fat. And so I, I really believe that. And I can remember, I, you know, I could, it was countless. I wish I had a nickel for every uh, expert that, that said something like that over the years. That was very hard for me. I mean, I, especially my, my, my daughters when they were younger, I thought it was true. So I always wanted them to eat breakfast right when they got up. And I honestly, until a few years ago, I was, it was sort of five or six six or seven really times a day because I'd eat several small meals, uh, a couple of small snacks and up to two or three protein shakes. Now I'm working out a lot, so it's not as disastrous as it would have been. But what I didn't realize is that I was kind of slowly creating insulin resistance in myself. And I was never giving my metabolism a chance to actually use 
fat for fuel. I was just, mm -hmm. you know, preferring that sugar glucose pathway that works. It's a part of the design system that God gave us. But, you know, it's like you're a hybrid and you just never use the gas tank. You just use the battery for 15 or 20 years. That gas tank's going to be in, in bad shape. And it was really a series in some ways of happy accidents that I discovered ketosis and discovered we've got these two different metabolic pathways and we should really be using both of those. And so we need to eat in a way and we need to fast in a way that allows us to do that. As you tell your listeners, you want to be metabolically flexible. And that's my goal in the book. It's not, okay, look, you have to eat a ketogenic diet all the time or anything like that. It's just that if you're not doing that and you're not used to doing that and you're eating really refined carbohydrates and sugars all the time, you need to kind of readjust your body so it can get used to using fat for fuel. Exactly. Be, you know, just give your body the opportunity to tap in to the storage, to the, to those, yeah. uh, to that fat storage. You know, as you said that, I was just thinking, I mean, think just what a swing in, in the mind, you know, from the, you know, just that three normal three meals a day, even as mm -hmm. recent as the 1950s, 60s, and then to this grazing six to seven meals a day. And now we're coming around to like, fasting and it's just, yeah. it's just so, <laughs> if people are like you know we're getting whiplash from um all of this different advice which is you know what i tell my listeners with with nutrition um there's just so much advice coming out there and mm. so what i always try to do for people is just bring it back to you know real food the way god made it if you stick yeah. to that generally you're gonna be you're gonna you're be okay better. you know and just yeah. really honoring um our design and part of that is that um, is the, those metabolic pathways, you know, being a, you know, sugar burner and mm -hmm. a fat burner. And that is by design and it protects us and it helps us. And it just gives us, um, a really thriving, um, metabolism and way to live. So I appreciated so much that you, that is really the metabolic goal that you are, you know, um, subscribing to here. Yeah. Um, when you, okay. So when you finally, you know, you were talking about in the book, like, you know, you were like eating the egg whites and, you know, mm -hmm. you know, like oh, keeping yeah. the fat low and we oh, don't want to yeah. get cholesterol and all that. So when you switched into eating a higher fat diet, what surprised mm -hmm. you the most? Well, what surprised me the most when I first did it, this has been about seven or eight years ago now, I just, I read Gary Taub's book and I uh, read the, the book by Nina Teicholz on the Big Fat Surprise. And I had suspected for a long time, I read science a lot, I had suspected for a long time that a lot of these, this kind of conventional wisdom about fat was probably not right. But you know, if you've got it in, embedded in your habits, it's very hard to overcome it. And so finally one summer, my family and I were living on Vashon Island. There's a beautiful island in the Pacific Northwest uh, in the Puget Sound. And we had total control over our diet and we were eating making all of our own meals, eating at a, you know, shopping at these great markets on the island. I thought, okay, I'm going to just try this on myself. I'm going to drop my carbohydrate intake below 100 grams. So not super low carb, but low for average Americans. And then I'm just going to just blow it out with the fat. I'm just going to do it, eat everything I want. I didn't even really look at the quality of the fats at the time, honestly. Just eat a lot of fat, drop the carbs below 100 uh, grams a day and it changed my weight not at all and I didn't really lose weight but I gained absolutely no weight I was still doing everything else the same I really actually felt better I felt more energetic I slept better 
And so that was enough for me to say, okay, this is, you know, I've now confirmed what I've been reading in my own body, that you can eat a heck of a lot of fat as long as you adjust things in other places. And I had my blood work done and it was fine. It was great. You know, it had never been bad, but it was not bad then. And so that was, that kind of primed the pump for me intellectually. I had to first get my mind around the fact that our body under certain conditions burns fat really well and prefers to burn fat and likes fat. Mm -hmm. And that's how we're designed. And we shouldn't treat this thing as if it's uh, the dietary fat is some kind of poison. We have been sold a bill of goods about that. Right. I remember when it first really clicked for me, um, and this has been years ago now, um, because avocado is now a, you know, mm. a darling of, <laughs> of, of nutrition. But I yes. um, remember at one point, it, you know, everyone's like, don't eat avocados. They're fattening. They're bad for you. And it was in that moment I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Mm. avocados grow on trees. Mm -hmm. God made trees. How can <laughs> this be bad for us? I don't get it. And that was one of the first times I, this, you know, I really was like, I, I need to rethink this. You know, I need to... Uh, think for myself a little bit here because that makes no sense to me. Um, so yeah, um, I, I I think that that switch to higher fat is a lot to overcome for a lot of people, mm -hmm. um, and it's why I like you know I love to have a guest on like you that has this um, this some of the science background, all this research, um, also just to help calm the fears of people that you know fear. Um, the the argument of high cholesterol and, and such, oh, yeah. um, because I can't say that all the medical establishment is quite, quite over the hump. It's getting there. No, it is getting there. And I talked to, I have good friends that are physicians and I talked to them about it. And most of them kind of know it's fishy. They're still hesitant to give anyone else advice though, because it's sort of like, well, the kind of institutional establishments um, are, are so kind of bought into this that they're almost afraid, they'll do it, but they're sort of sometimes afraid to tell their patients these things. And so I decided in the book, essentially, because you know there are lots of footnotes to, um, to science journal articles, and I just decided, okay, I'm going to ignore the epidemiological studies, which are just not useful. These studies where they discover a correlation between doing A and doing B based on these questionnaires where you have to you ask people, okay, how many times have you had plums in the last year? I mean, it's just useless scientifically. <laughs> right. And so we, let's stick to the, the real clinical studies of things that, where we have some understanding of causation. And when you do that, you just it turns out most of the stuff you read on the cover of Time magazine about nutrition, it's not based on that. It's based on these epidemiological studies that are just really aren't useful for deciding, okay, how are you going to live your life and what are you going to eat? Mm -hmm. Correlation is not causation. It's sure not. Um, so I, um, in the book, it really struck me when you, uh, you know, talked about your health problems and... Mm. Um, overcoming sinus infections and migraines, but then a pretty serious esophageal yeah. issue that you had battled for years. Can you, oh, yeah. um, can you tell us about your struggle with Definitely. that and, and overcoming that with this dietary and fasting change? Yeah, it was, um, it's actually called eosinophilic esophagitis, which I now can pronounce. But uh, I mean, honestly, since I was in the sixth grade, I had this problem where I would eat uh, you know, I'd take a bite of something and it would stick in my esophagus and sometimes wouldn't go down or I'd have to force it down painfully with water. Sometimes it'd come back up. 
my family thought, well, this is weird. I mean, they thought it's nerves. That was the kind of take home, you know, the, the all-purpose explanation for problems, <laughs> at least when I was a kid. Oh, it's your nerves. You just need to relax. And I even had nurses tell me that. And never really fixed the problem. And so I was often having to go to the bathroom to, you know, in case I was going to spit up. Just really, really inconvenient, needless to say. Um, and, and so finally, after I got married, I was in graduate school. I thought, huh, maybe I should go to the doctor and see if there's something wrong. <laughs> you know, it occurred to me. And so they did a, you know, they have you swallow barium and did an x-ray. And sure enough, I had this extreme narrowing in my esophagus. And so you can do a procedure where they put a tube down your throat and it's a little balloon on the end and basically stretch your esophagus. And that it's painful uh, for a few days, but it would open up my throat and I'd, it'd work for a few years. But I had to keep having it done. Doctor said, we don't really know what causes this. Some people just have this problem. It might be acid reflux. Do that test. No, it's not, not that. So finally, when I was in Seattle, um, I, I had a new uh, um, ear, nose, and throat doctor and went to see him and described it to him because I thought, I think I need to have this stretching procedure done again. And he said, I bet you anything you've got eosinophilic esophagitis. He did a biopsy. Sure enough, what it is, it's a, a, a condition where your esophagus fills with white blood cells, with eosinophils, and it just swells it up. So it's like your esophagus is so swelled that it doesn't do the kind of pumping action it's supposed to to bring food down to your stomach. The bad news is nobody knew what caused it. And so I went six years trying different medicines and stuff to fix it, not really knowing what to do. And then actually after I moved to Washington, D.C., went to another doctor to do the procedure again. And he said, oh, have you tried the six-food elimination diet? And I thought, eh, there's no way this is a diet's going to fix this. I mean, I, if, this was, if food were causing this, I would surely know it. But he said, no, there's studies now that suggest large numbers of these cases are the result of food intolerances. So they're intolerance that your body has, but it doesn't show up on a regular um, you know, allergy test because you don't have this direct antigenic response. And so he tested it and everything and said, okay, go ahead and do this. So I committed to doing this for three months. I had to eliminate... Um, oh gosh, it was everything under the sun. Seafood, eggs, dairy, uh, soy, nuts. I'm forgetting a couple. Maybe I mean, was, wheat or corn. Yeah, yeah, wheat, exactly. It was mm -hmm. wheat, that's right. And so, um, and so it was, you know, it was a heck of a lot of what I ate. And I can tell you, I ate a lot, drank a lot of whey protein shakes and a lot, lot of eggs. I mean, probably 30% of my protein intake was eggs at the time. So I started doing this. Um, and within three days, my throat started getting better. So it didn't take three weeks or three months. It was three days. I was three days away from a cure for this disease that I'd had for decades. That made me very aware of the effects of food, which might, they're sort of can be benign over a short period of time, but can be really bad and even catastrophic over long periods of time. And this is what, this is what the standard American diet is. It doesn't kill you right away. It's not going to kill you to eat three Twinkies right now or six donuts. Um, but if you're constantly just infusing yourself and your diet with highly refined grains and carbohydrates and lots and lots of sugar over decades, that is going to probably cause serious problems like you know, type 2 diabetes and metabolic syndrome and obesity and all these sorts of things. So that made me acutely aware of the effects of diet. But the kind of serendipitous part of this is that before I had the procedure done, I had to go 36 hours without eating. And I thought, gosh, this is going to be terrible. I'd never been a good faster, never gone that long. I'd been eating a low-carb low diet, though. And at the end of that process, I went to work out and thought, I'm going to die. And instead, I was stronger and more energetic, and I had this amazing lucidity. My mind was clearer than I'd ever experienced. 
And so after I started doing this special uh, six food elimination diet, that's when I started researching fasting. And of course, anybody that does a Google search of that, it's going to discover all the information there is about it. And so that's really what got me fasting. It was being forced to fast for a medical procedure, discovering the long-term bad effects of certain ways of eating, uh, and then the experience of what was really, I was probably in ketosis because I had, had already been eating a low, low fat diet. It was all those things converged finally to make me willing to consider fasting. And then when I went to the internet, I discovered the wonders of what people were finding. Oh gosh, that it just kind of all came together. I, um, I highlighted outlined dog ear this page when you said this, because it, the sentence, it like, it broke my heart and just kicked me in the stomach and made me think this is why I'm a nutritionist. When you said, you kind of said it here mm -hmm. already for over three decades, I had been three days away from a cure and didn't mm -hmm. know it. And yeah. I just was like, Oh, because I resonate with that. I have a, um, I have a genetic skin condition that I, you mm -hmm. know, went to doctors for 20 years, did every, everything that, you know, possibly could have done. And to finally just, they kind of gave up on me. Like, you just have to live with this. And it was that it was a diagnosis of unexplained infertility. It was a mm. lifetime of digestive issues. All of those things. Finally, you know, I turned to diet as really a last resort because not, there was yeah. nothing else working. My <laughs> husband was not up for fertility treatments. And so yep. I was like, this is my last hope. And within, you know, six weeks, I was, I was able to conceive wow. um, after, you know, giving up gluten, getting some um, yep. good essential fatty acids in. And that was really, all of that was really the beginning of my journey. And I was like, oh man, I, what, what is wow. happening? How is this possible? And so that's kind of what led me to uh, become a nutritionist and and it's just i it is where i look around and i can see somebody that you know with a few changes they could feel so much better mm. you know they oh, could yeah. just ha have that vibrant life that you know we're meant to have and um and it just it really just kind of breaks my heart for um for those that don't realize it yet but that's just that's why i'm here that's why i do this mm -hmm. podcast that's you know i just want to spread this good news of real food the way god made it and just this, you know, this beautiful design that our body is got this innate wisdom. It knows how to heal, you know, when we yeah. give it the tools. And I think that real food and fasting um, are are tools that God gives us, you Absolutely. know, to live yeah. our best health. I know. Um, and, you know, if you connect that then to also to the history of humanity and, you know, look for most of human history, people didn't have access to this kind of food. Now, be thankful that we're not starving to death. So it's a blessing that we have access to all these sorts of things. But, you know, I'm, I, I, I teach in a business school and I teach kids about trade-offs and even really good things, having all sorts of food available all the time uh, comes with a cost. And the cost has been that um, we're sort of violating the natural way in which we've design, been designed, which is to eat a lot sometimes, eat modestly, good bit of the time and then not eat at all part of the time. And that's actually how we're designed to work best. Yes, you said, because I wrote it down, um, our ancestors were victims of scarcity and we are victims of abundance. Mm. And I, you know, that's, this is what I share with my, a lot with my listeners and my clients is that yes, historically there was just this natural rhythm of, you know, more food abundance and then times mm -hmm. when things were leaner. And yeah. that we have to realize God, you know, God set us up. He knows yeah. what he's doing. He knows what he's <laughs> he, doing. Yeah. You know, he made <laughs> our bodies to be able to withstand that. And now, you know, we don't, 
or here in America, you know, and anyway, we don't, mm -hmm. we don't have that scarcity. And I, I, mm. I've called it a blurse, you know, that, that, yeah, that that's combination a of a blessing and a curse, which <laughs> thank God we're not, you know, we're not starving and we have this yeah. beautiful availability of food all the time. But at the same time, it's distorted our, um, you know, our perception, yeah. our way of eating. So definitely. I really appreciated that. Um, okay, so I have a, a question for you, and I mm -hmm. get this question. I just want to hear your take on it because, sure. you know, there's a lot of bread eating going yeah. on in the Bible. Absolutely. Right? I get that a lot. Yeah. Yes, there's fishes and loaves. There's meat and yes, quail. I mean, there's, it's like mm -hmm. bread, like bread and protein, you know. And yeah. so what is your, um, what's your take about that? People, you know, know, Jesus is the bread of life. I mean, what? we're not supposed to eat bread. What is the deal? I know. Give us this day our daily bread. Doesn't right. mean we're supposed to eat bread every day. And so it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's complicated. I mean, this is the problem. And so I've got friends that are like, Jay, you've got a bread. There's a bread right on the cover of your book. And um, now, I, so I, I really do think I don't, you know I um, I think there's a couple of things going on. I do think that the the way in which grain, uh, the you know the way we've developed it, I think um, over time probably unintentionally is creating lots of problems for people. Of course, there's celiac, but which seems to be going up. But just gluten insensitivity sensitivity uh, and intolerance is increasing. Um, I don't think that, you know, well, this means you never are supposed to eat bread or never supposed to eat grain, but that the way in which we tend to both produce it and certainly the way in which we tend to refine it is very different from the kind of bread that Jesus was eating. But we also know, I mean, we know about the diets of the ancient Near East, and that was not, the, the preferred diet was not to eat bread all the time. People, if they could get fish or meat, they wanted that. They just didn't have very much of it. And so it's not like we need to necessarily replicate that. But I write, Ryan, you know, my fellow Christians, I say, look, yeah, we have in communion uh, bread and wine, and uh, we consume that. Nevertheless, some people do have uh, celiac disease. And so that's presumably not a violation of God's plan. And in the same way, um, the fact that these have been raised to, sac to a sacrament, it doesn't follow that we're just supposed to eat as much refined grain as we possibly can. And that's actually what we're doing. Um, if you're doing it very modestly, and it really, I, I just feel like it really very much depends upon the person. I, for myself, don't think we're really well designed, and I'm not at least well designed to eat a whole lot of grain, so I don't. And the grains that I do eat, um, I tend to eat stone ground corn for a treat and things like that, but it's not a major, it's just not a major part of my diet. But I don't make that a dogma for everyone. I think that, you know, you just kind of have to play with it and see. I totally agree. And I, I appreciated in your book how I can't remember exactly how you phrased it, but basically that agriculture was not evil, yeah. you know, that, um, and not a curse and, and such and such. But, um, and that's what I try to, you know, in part to the people that I work with that mm -hmm. grain, you know, it presents a lot of problems. I think it has a lot to do with the, um, you know, our microbiome being so yeah. compromised due to, so, you know, we encounter so many more toxins and problems yeah. today. I just think we're compromised in our microbiome. We don't handle it as well, but that, yeah. um, you know, the way I teach people is just, I take them through kind of a, a systematic approach to carbohydrates so they can kind mm -hmm. of, you know, figure out, what works for them and what doesn't instead of saying you can't have this 
you know, then that makes people want to have it automatically. But just well, it really, does. <laughs> you You're know? fantasizing about the donuts, I know. And I mean, the, re the reality is that because for so long there's been a bias in the medical establishment, I just think that a lot of the data is still out on this. Because if we're all being told to eat grains all the time as the base of our diet, and it's a particular kind of grain and we're processing in a certain way, uh, the energy has not gone into, okay, what are the costs of eating in this way? And so I, I honestly feel like there's a lot of evidence that's suggestive, um, but you know, I think we'll probably learn a lot about this, including the microbiome effects in the next decade or so for sure. I agree, absolutely. But you know, as of now, you know, one of the best ways to know is just to make that connection. I think a lot of people just fail to make the connection, you know, as you did, as I did, you know, back mm -hmm. in the day between food and the body and how you feel. How does it make you yeah. feel? You know, and then when you do an elimination diet or um, fasting, switching gears a little bit, and then really paying attention to if you bring that back in, what it does to your body. Mm. Um, it's really, you know, that elimination diet is really the gold standard um, yeah. for knowing uh, what, your what works for your body and what doesn't. Definitely. Um, well, let's go over um, kind of the, what, okay, here's what I like about the way the book is set up. It's kind mm. of like alternating chapters of the nutrition and science, you know, behind the nutrition mm -hmm. advice and then going into, um, you know, the um, historical um, information about fasting or why, you know, the spiritual nature, you know, what it does for us. And, I, and, and so it just kept it, it was a nice flow. It was really enjoyable to read. Um, but I want to give people that sense of um, kind of what the approach is in the book. It's really interesting. Sure. You have it take place over six weeks. Yes. So it's, it's broken down into six weeks, which is a great, um, it's a great opportunity to try it during Advent or Lent. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, um, but each week is a little bit different. So, um, and I have, I haven't even done all these fasts, so I, I'm inspired oh. to try some of this, but so week one is generally getting fat adapted. Is that, that's would you right. say that's accurate? That's right. It's the, the whole first week is really just getting yourself used to processing fat and knowing what it feels like to be in ketosis. For a lot of people, they won't ever have been in ketosis since they're infants. And so that takes some getting used to. And also getting your, your when you do that, you know, and you're flushing fluids and electrolytes, you want to keep those in the right place so you don't feel this keto flu. So the whole point of the first week is just get yourself fat adapted or as fat adapted as you can uh, in a week. And so in, this is just my own hard won experience is that if you're in ketosis, fasting is way, way easier than if you're not. Right. Well, just that, that ability to use fat for fuel and energy, um, by the nature of that just makes, you know, fasting, um, a much, um, less harrowing <laughs> experience than if you're a sugar burner and, um, yeah, that's pretty tough. So yes, that first week is, um, switching gears and upping your fats, lowering your yep. carbs. And then week two is suggested the, the 16, eight fast. So kind of yeah. explain to people the, the feeding window, the fasting and the feeding window. Yeah. And so basically once you're fat adapted, then it's only then that I say, okay, so now start limiting the amount of time during the day in which you eat. Most of us unfortunately do a 16, eight where we hopefully sleep for eight hours and eat <laughs> for 16 hours, you know, <laughs> right. um, which is historically unprecedented until about three decades ago. And, but so really the first, the second week, you just flip that. So just, just eat all of your meals. If you want two or three or four meals, whatever, do it in an eight hour period and then go 16 hours of the 24 hour day 
without eating any, at least any calories. Um, and that, of course, includes the time in which you sleep. And so you do that for a week. Um, that's, you know, it's really not that hard, though it seems scary to people if they haven't gotten themselves into ketosis. And then you just keep doing that essentially for several weeks. So the third, third week, you actually go to the 24 routine. So in other words, three of the days that week, maybe Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, limit the amount of time in which you eat to only four hours during the day. You just pick whenever that's going to be. I, I found it easier to delay eating than to eat early in the morning, but I don't sort of prescribe that. And so now you, your body is going to spend more of its time in its fasted state. It's going to, insulin levels are going to get really low. It's getting more and more used to burning fat. It's starting, cells are starting to develop more mitochondria to deal with the, the fat for fuel. And then in the fourth week, um, it starts to get you know, a, a little more serious for people. My friends tell me that this one meal a day thing is where stuff gets hard. And that's basically three of the days that week. You just have one, you can have a huge meal, but it's just one meal basically for an hour or whatever um, for the day. And then it's 23 hours without food. Now at this point, you're doing what most people would consider a very serious fast. Even though if you're able to eat a lot in an hour, you haven't necessarily dropped your total caloric intake for the week total. It's just sort of redistributed. It's only in week five that you actually, during that week, will eat less than you would normally. And so basically what I do is I modeled this on uh, uh, Walter Longo's fasting mimicking diet, but simplified. And so basically um, three of the days you will just eat about a fourth of the normal calories. So it's essentially one meal a day, and you can, if you eat normally 2,000 calories, you can only eat 500 calories. And when I do this, it's basically two avocados with some salsa is, is what I do. Um, at that point, you are spending a lot of time in the fasted state, and you've also, now you're dropping the caloric intake significantly for three of those days. And so it's only in week six that I advise fasters to try a multi-day fast from 36 hours on the low end, which means that you're going two nights basically without, without you know, you, you basically you eat a Monday night maybe, and then you go all day Tuesday and you don't eat again until Wednesday morning, but somewhere between the 36 hour to 72 hour fast. Um, now you're doing a multi-day fast. And at that point, if you've done that, first of all, you're going to find amazing physical changes. I have friends that have done this. And, you know, I say, don't look at the scales the first week. You'll lose a lot of water weight. But, you know, right. they're sort of elated. At that point, you can engage in all sorts of different fasts. And the thing that's maybe the most speculative about my book is that I think there are there are probably different physical benefits and effects to different types and timescale fasts. And so there are benefits to doing time-restricted eating during the day. There's also benefit to doing one or two or maybe even three days fasting every so often. And it's kind of person relative. But I think that we know, for instance, that autophagy takes a while to kick in, um, that you're not going to get that if you're just sort of limiting the amount of food you eat during the day. So, so the idea is that you ultimately develop a fasting lifestyle in which you have daily fasts where you have a period of time during a 24-hour day when you don't eat. You have weekly fasts, say a Wednesday and a fr Friday where you do a really serious fast. And then seasonal fasts like the seasonal ember days, which are these three-day fasts at the joints of the seasons. And then the great Christian seasons of Lent and Easter where you have this long period where you're not necessarily just doing a water-only fast for 40 days, but you're doing something above and beyond just restricting your eating, you're maybe restricting the types of foods you eat. And I'm, I'm convinced that that traditional Christian pattern of the Christian year, it doesn't just have spiritual benefits, it probably has still to be discovered physical benefits as well. Mm -hmm. 
So, okay, I'm going to recap for people because I'll because you know what most people are familiar with right now, I guess, in the mm-hmm. fasting world is is basically the 16-8, where you yes. you fast for 16 hours and you eat within an eight-hour window. Right. Um, in my group, I have them, you know, we have people just starting, we have people that have done it for a while. So we, we kind of range from 12 to 16. And that's kind okay. of where we, that's what we do, nor, you know, naturally and normally. Right. Um, and so I, I was like, wow, you, you're, you're make you're gonna make me grow. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to, you're going to grow my fasting. So I, but I loved it because you, you brought in, um, a lot of, you know, there's, there's like the five, two, there's the, the, you know, all these, I've read all, a lot of these books, but you kind of bring it all together in one place and gradually kind of up the ante as the week goes on, weeks go on. That's right. Um, I guess is the best way to put it. So week one is getting fat adapted. Week two is mm-hmm. um, 16, eight. Week three is fasting 20 hours, eating in yep. a four hour window. Week four is fasting for 23 hours, eating mm-hmm. in a one hour window. Week five is the fasting mimicking diet where you, so, okay. So you do this, uh, you do it on three three days of the week, the three that's non-consecutive right. days, where basically you're eating lower calorie. And that's when you said you kind of do the, the avocados or maybe the, the broth or a combination exactly. thereof. Yeah, and so you can eat, um, and this is Walter Longo's research at the University of Southern California, is a lot of evidence that you can get most of the benefits of a straight fast if you um, drastically reduce your caloric intake. So you're not cutting it at half. It's literally cutting it by about 75%. So for women, that's four or 500 calories a day. So it's not eating a whole lot. And so I suggest doing that three non-consecutive days because there's also a lot of data about the virtues of an alternate day fast, which is, mm-hmm. and so that's a really the kind of combination of that. And I've test, I tested this several different ways and just found this is the kind of easiest on-ramp. If you want to get to a stage where you could say go three days uh, without without eating, just, you know, just liquids, um, what's the easiest way to get there? And this is, there's probably other pathways, but this is the easiest way I can find. I also am, am intrigued by the fact that I think for people, especially sort of um, ultra marathoners and people that do the low, really low carb ultra marathon stuff, it seems to take about six weeks to get really fat adapted. And so I think that it may just be something about that sweet spot. And so it's not just that that's how long, uh, Lent lasts. It's actually about how long people take to really get uh, fully fat adapted. Mm-hmm. So on that week five, when you're doing the fasting mimicking diet, and you're you know you're going basically lower calorie on those three days, which are non-consecutive. What are the other four days look like? The other four days you want to keep. Um, I, I encourage eating a really low carb diet during this period. So that's the hardest thing about this. It's not absolutely essential that you eat ketogenically during this time. I'm assuming that most people that read this though have never really been in ketosis and need the time. And so it's gonna be hard at the beginning if you're constantly going in and out of ketosis. And so I actually kind of encourage that, but to keep it you know, to definitely no more than 12 hours. So still a time restricted eating of eight to, to 12 hours, just because you wanna kind of keep that going. Um, but this is hard for people usually to just eat 500 calories in a day if you haven't done that. Because for a lot of people, including me, that actually is harder for me to do that than to just go 36 hours without eating. Because if I go all day, my body knows, I told it, I'm not eating today. 
But boy, if I have an avocado or two, it's like, oh, all right, feast is coming. You know? Yeah, we're so, eating. Yeah, <laughs> all righty, let's go. And so some people find this more difficult, but it's still, I think it's the way to kind of, the way to sort of ease into that. And so I do think you should still do some modest time-restricted eating on those other days, but not try to limit the amount of food that you eat because um, you eventually get to where you can do that. But you're already, if you're dropping... 75% of your calories for three days out of the week, that's a major drop of the total, the net caloric intake for the week. Right, that for sure. Well, and I, and so then finally that week six, a multi-day fast, I mean, that's been on my radar. Uh, I mean, the longest I've gone is 24 hours. Um, yep. It's been on my radar, on my heart that I want I want to do a multi-day fast. I, I told my husband this morning, I, you know, because he knows I was going to talk to you and I've been reading this book. Mm -hmm. And I said, I think what I'm going to have to do, babe, is because he's a rancher. We have a rancher. Okay. I, like, I think I'm going to have to go to the ranch by myself and camp out and just be alone because number one, <laughs> yeah. I can't be cooking for my family. You know, I'm, that's, no, it's that's terrible. Yeah. That's one of the hardest things for me is, you know, I've got all these people to feed in my house. And so when they eat a yeah. lot, you know, and so I'm, I'm constantly cooking um, oh, for them. so hard. And then, you know, and then if they expect me to be nice to them, that's I mean... <laughs> another thing. Yeah, exactly. And you're going to have to sleep. You're going to have to have the first night and then you have the second night. This is really, I think it is the hump that everybody has to get over is that second night without food. A lot of people are, you know, you feel sleepless and it just drives you crazy. Um, I've got a colleague that it's the same thing. She's a, a faculty colleague of mine. She's an economist. She has nine kids um, oh, and wow. she cooks like crazy. And she's an amazing bread uh, maker. And so she went through the plan and she said, Jay, I want to write you something on the, on the specific uh, challenges of moms with mothers in fasting because she found some strategies that I don't think I would have thought of, you know. But yeah, that is a challenge. But the reality is um, people, millions and millions of people have been doing this for all of history. You know, they've gone a couple of nights without eating. And once you do that, I can tell you that second night where you go to 48 hours or all the way to 60 or 72, it's actually much easier. And so that's the, that's really the big hump. And then the first time you do it, yeah, you might be grumpy. Um, but that, that grumpiness goes away because we're, we're, our bodies are sort of you know, creatures of habit. And so if you do this a couple of times, your body's like, oh, okay, we're doing another one of those fasts. I don't need to go into panic mode. Whereas the first time, I think people's sort of adrenaline shoots through the roof and you know, it can be sort of tough. So I, I say, look, expect a little difficulty that first two times. It is totally worth it if you get over the hump. Right. I imagine so. And, you know, you talk about experiencing that mental clarity. And I just think this is really where it all comes together. This spirit, mm. mind, body, full package, you know, with the fasting, yes. because when you are burning ketones um, and you get that clarity, I mean, doesn't it make so much sense mm. that you would fast? It's good for your body. It's good for your mind. And we're meant to be praying during it. And, and, yeah. and during a fast, you're just, it's, it's so much about that spiritual connection with God that I think they just go hand in hand, just kind of this opening of your mind, this mental clarity, this mm -hmm. sharpness and, um, you know, acuteness of thinking. And I just, I think that really, it just makes sense. It really does. And that's what's sort of funny about it because once you, I mean, I started, you know, pulling up church fathers on fasting and saw how many of them said this, that it's kind of intensifies the clarity of thought and mind. But of course, they didn't know about ketones and fat. They didn't know there's actually a real physiological effect here uh, that kicks in. And so once all that kind of comes together, you realize, oh, this makes perfect 
sense uh, that you know this idea because the story was that well no you wouldn't what happens is if you're imagining sort of hunter-gatherer humans and uh, they go around your body's going to want to shed muscle because it um, you know it, muscle it uses up a lot of calories so if you don't have food your body's going to shed muscle and store fat well that doesn't make any sense because if you run out of food you need mental clarity and strength to go out and hunt another alpaca or, you know, or <laughs> impala or whatever it is you eat. And that's, in fact, what happens. And we now know that you actually have to go about five days of fasting. So, you know, rather than your metabolism slowing down, your body releases more growth hormone and norepinephrine and adrenaline. Um, and about it's actually day three, your metabolism, your resting energy expenditure is higher than it was in the beginning. And you have to go all the way to day five before your metabolism slows down back to where it was at the beginning. And so, um, and I, interestingly, it may just be a coincidence, but most of the long fast studies that have been done have just been done out to five days. So that's really where, hmm. if you want to say, what's the scientific evidence for longer fast, it, it ends at five days, but that's mainly because it's hard to test beyond that. And so I had to go out and there are actually journals written by uh, Muslims uh, that have studied fasting during Ramadan. Now those aren't 40 days straight, but in, during Ramadan for a month, Muslims don't eat during, from sunrise to sunset. And fortunately, there are actually journals on that. And so I, I think the data still, that sort of evidence is still out there for these longer fasts, but we know that there are physiological benefits up to that five-day period. Mm, so interesting. Um, well, you know, I'm always saying that science is always coming around to proving to, you know, what the Bible has always told us, basically. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, exactly. that, I mean, we don't have, yes, we did not, the Bible doesn't tell us about ketones or anything like mm -hmm. that, but, you know, it, it is, that... <laughs> it, yes, it, that's right. But, it, you know, that is there. And just the fact that we are meant to fast and we've just, we've, we've lost that as Christians in that, you know, you talk about the um, fasting in community and um, just going into all of that. And I, I, I truly hope that this becomes, um, this has a resurrection in the church mm. and in the communities. And um, because, you know, you have a chapter on, you know, spiritual warfare and just yeah. how this is fasting is so fasting and prayer is so powerful against that. And that, you know, the, the devil fears prayer, but he really fears he really fasting with prayer. Yeah. <laughs> so. No, he does. And I didn't even know this, that the Catholic priests, they are required to fast if they are exorcists. They're required to fast before they perform an exorcism, which I thought was fascinating, you know, and this is an ancient tradition of doing this. And so, you know, I think what we're, we're at a moment where we're going to get to rediscover all of these spiritual riches that have been waiting there for us all along, but we just had, had let it drop. Oh, I agree. I think we are on the path to that, which is, which is really wonderful. Even if we, you know, I tell people, I'm not above going through your vanity to get you to. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's why I said, look, if you just want to do this for, uh, to, to lose weight, cause I've had friends say, Oh, you shouldn't encourage people to do this for the health benefits cause it's supposed to be spiritual. I said, well, Okay, yeah, but you can do it for both of those things can be fine. And even if somebody just tries it for the one reason, I'm hoping they will discover the spiritual benefits as well. Exactly. Um, you know, that's, that's really how I get a lot of people into to try it is just, you know, it's a great, you know, it's fat loss. It's a great way to lose fat. And that might pique the interest. And if I have to go for your vanity jugular, I am certainly not above it and I will do it. And then I'll get you in there and then we're going to talk about the spiritual part. <laughs> That's right. I look at it as, look, there more than one boy has gone to youth group because there were girls there, you know? <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, that's so great. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, as we're winding down, I want to ask you the questions I ask all of my guests who yes. come here, and that is the anchor questions. And the first mm -hmm. one is, what is your anchor meal, which is your go-to healthy meal, the one that, you know, you always have the stuff in your fridge, it's easy, yes. it's healthy, and you count on it? Well, I, so all sorts of different kinds of meat. I don't have one that I prefer. I really, really do like blackened uh, wild salmon when I can get it. My wife is great and makes that quite frequently. And so I would guess I'd say it was going to be a single anchor meal. It would be that blackened salmon that's cooked in a lot of coconut oil. I use a heck of a lot of coconut oil because I can't uh, eat butter um, because of the dairy insensitivity. Oh. And uh, the same thing with uh, green beans or Brussels sprouts or asparagus actually roasted with a lot of oil in it and a lot of spice. And then Greek salad. I eat I eat three or four Greeks, big, big Greek salads a week with a heck of a lot of olive oil and vinegar and all the stuff that you would put on that, except alas for feta cheese, which I can't eat. But most people, you know, are blessed to be able to have that. And so that's that's my anchor meal. And in fact, it drives my daughters crazy because they're like, yeah, we like Greek salad, but can't we have some other salad? <laughs> I don't like it that much for every meal. Um, no, that's, that's so right. <laughs> yeah. And then that's if funny. I do eat fruit, I really like, um, and I do this on the weekends, I tend to not eat a lot of sugar at all during the week, but on the feast day, on Sunday, um, I eat a lot of fruit. And so I eat a lot of berries and I eat uh, ruby red grapefruit, which I really like. Yeah, that's something that we didn't talk about. So um, you are designate, because historically, I guess it really was, that yeah. Sunday was the feast day in the that's church. Right. And, so, um, and so those are the feasting days and, um, and how you kind of balance out the fasting. Absolutely. And that's the thing. You don't have to talk about as much about feasting because we all kind of know how to do that. But it <laughs> right. helps to know that, you know, the, the ancient tradition was Wednesdays and Fridays were fast days. So Wednesday's the day that Jesus was betrayed and Friday the day that he was crucified. Sunday is, of course, the day of resurrection. And so that was always a mini feast. And that's a mini feast even during Lent. And even during my six-week plan, Sunday is a little different. And you kind of loosen it up. And that, it, first of all, it makes the fasting easier, but it also makes the feasting more enjoyable to have been preceded by a fast. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You mentioned Brussels sprouts a minute ago. And did you, mm. I did not know, I'm a nutritionist, but I did not know this. And this was in your book that mm -hmm. there's a chemical in Brussels sprouts yeah. that some people react they to that. that yeah. What is, what is that? Yeah, it's a, it's actually, tr in, it, it's common in all cruciferous vegetables. And fortunately, I think it bothered me when I was a kid because the Brussels sprouts I used to eat when I was a kid, I thought were terrible. And they had, they taste very bitter. I don't taste that anymore, and I, I love them. In fact, when they're roasted, they actually taste sweet to me, especially because I don't eat much of sweets. But some, there are certain people are just really sensitive to particular chemical compounds, and they taste them. And so it's fortunately, God has given us lots of variety on the earth. And if you're an American, you have it all available to you at your grocery store. And so there's, there's no reason you should just have to eat one thing. That's right. Well, I'm with you on Brussels sprouts. I mean, I, the, I, my problem is I have to hold back because they're so good. I can just pop them oh, in my yeah. candy if they've been roasted or sweet potatoes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. I'm oh, just, gosh, yeah. That is such a treat, especially if you've been really um, keeping your carbs low. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, and so the other anchor question is, what is your anchor verse? I'm sure you have many, but if there's a, a certain, you know, scripture verse that is really speaking to you right now or keeps you grounded, um, yeah. What would that be for you? It, well, it's probably, it's funny because I'm thinking about that. And it's actually Psalm 19. And the reason is because I'm in Washington, D.C. and I'm going to be giving a lecture in a few weeks on science and the Bible. 
um, oh. at the Museum of the Bible, actually. Oh, I've been there. It's so fabulous. Yeah. And so I'm giving a lecture on science in the Bible because they're about to have an exhibit on science in the Bible. And so they asked me to speak. And so I'm studying Psalm 19 in which uh, it's the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. That the created world, not just scripture, yes, scripture uh, and God's acts in history, he reveal us, uh, reveal God specially. We, he gives us his personal name. We know him in particular, but also his created order gives a revelation and actually glorifies him so that the heavens just like we we glorify him the heavens themselves glorify god and so that's the verse that's just banging around in my head honestly at the moment that's perfect that is perfect well is there anything that we didn't cover from um from the book that you wanted to share honestly just the i, I really do think that there's a benefit for christians in tapping back into the liturgical calendar. So recognizing, most of us kind of know about Advent and Christmas and Easter, and, but just tapping into those things where we, we look at Advent not just as a big long feast from you know Thanksgiving to Christmas, but we think of that as a penitential and a preparatory season. And that during Lent, that we really fast. We don't just give up Facebook or something, but that we really have a fasting regimen that we decide ahead of time. And I'm convinced, and uh, you know, millions of Christians have said there's just something spiritually beneficial about doing that. And when we do it together, we're doing it in concert with the body of Christ. And if it's true that wherever two or three are gathered together, uh, Christ is in the midst of them, imagine if millions of us are doing this with the sort of beat of the liturgical seasons of the church, what, what spiritual uh, power and implications there could be for that. Mm, that I'm really motivated to to dig in it more and be more, you know, in sync, I guess, with that liturgical calendar. And I am, I am, um, I'm feeling challenged and inspired <laughs> to go do a longer multi-day fast by myself in the wilderness without my right. family. <laughs> but I thank you for that. I thank you for this book. It really was so enjoyable to me. I think that um, everyone um, that listens to this podcast would enjoy it as well. So I, I highly recommend getting Eat, Fast, and Feast with Jay Richards, J.W. Richards, the author here. Thank you so much for being with us today. So great to be with you. All right, my friends, have a healthy and blessed week, and I will talk to you soon. Remember that my mom is an awesome nutritionist, but she's not a doctor. The information in this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Always talk to your doctor before making changes to your nutrition or exercise program. Thanks for listening. Have a healthy and blessed week.